0: I spent more time with Xi Jinping than any world leader had by the time we left office. This is a guy who doesn't have a democratic with a small d bone in his body. China and the USA are the world's most powerful countries, militarily and economically. Recent tensions between the two over the future of Taiwan are a concern for us all.
1: Rising tensions between the world's two most powerful countries, the United States and China, after several military close calls. In the most recent incident, U.S. Indo-Pacific Command says a Chinese warship came within 150 yards of an American destroyer above the Taiwan Strait.
0: China won't rule out taking the island by force.
1: Tonight, China's military declaring it's ready to fight after finishing three days of combat drills simulating a blockade to seal off Taiwan
0: but the USA says it will help the Taiwanese defend it. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. Economics, the sharing of technology, and Chinese claims in the South China Sea are also massive issues. China's foreign minister has warned that there will be, quote, confrontation and conflict between China and the US if Washington does not change its approach to his country. I'm joined by international affairs expert Angus Lampkin, who's lived in China, to get his analysis of the situation and to ask if he thinks it could result in conflict. Angus, many fear. And I think a number of years ago, it was very much some journalists and activists who said that uh, China and the USA were hurtling towards a confrontation. That fear has now gone quite... Mainstream, I suppose, in world affairs,
1: it certainly has from a Western perspective, and I think we see um, these concerns raised on a on a regular basis um, on both sides of the Atlantic, coming from European and uh, North American leaders alike. Um, to what extent this is linked to directly to um, you know domestic political issues? is one area that could be explored in more detail. I think the the alternative way of looking at this is that there is a a growing um, dynamic within China that's increasingly influential across the world, um, growing in terms of wealth and in terms of political clout, in terms of military capacity, and the interface with the Western world is growing. So the room for or the potential, shall we say, for friction between these two blocks uh, is is very much there. I think what we've seen is a, really a question of how we look at it, because we there's this massive interdependence that exists between the Western world and uh, the People's Republic of China. Huge amounts of value are um, invested in both directions. Massive amounts of trade is taking place. So this is a relationship that is of huge value um, to all concerned. But of course, it comes with a variety of of specific issues and the the list is long that um, have not been effectively negotiated by either side. And as a result, have caused uh, significant controversy, and it's um, it's regular that these come across. We see positive movements happen, happening of late, but we don't necessarily see uh, a resolution. Nor are we necessarily going to see a resolution in the coming future. It's likely to be a relationship of friction, as the shall we say the superpowers of the world compete over the the, the dwindling resources of the world and the, the decreasing space as the, the populations across the globe increase.
0: As you said, there's a number of things happening here. There's there's politics, there's world politics, there's the economics, there's resources, there's the question of Taiwan, and there are also uh, the question of human rights. And sometimes human rights are at the top of that list, but sometimes they dramatically go well down the list depending on, on the things. And I, when we talk about the economics of it, I mean, uh, of course, you know Japan and the United States of America once uh, competed for um, the economic resources of the, of the Pacific, namely oil and rubber, and that ended up in you know in a, in, in a hugely uh, dramatic um, war. So, how much of this do you think is pure economics? How much of this is to do with the the tech war? I suppose there's no
1: there's no doubt that the the, the, the... The trade and technology is one of the being the one the key issues that's run right across the relationship. I think you know China's invested considerable efforts in learning how it is that other that technologies that were more more advanced than were available to China uh, are, are produced, and is um is, is invested hugely in ensuring that they have the capacity to develop these technologies uh, themselves. At the same time, countries have sought to restrict. Um, access to technology. And this has been both for um, pol- political and military motivations, but also in the interests of copyrights and patents um, to ensure that the intellectual property that's developed is sufficiently protected. And it's been a long point of contention that China hasn't respected the intellectual property that's been developed elsewhere and has indeed copied its way in the direction of uh, reaching the the relative economic equality that it's now achieved, so this is um this is an ongoing issue of contention as regards to what is produced in China, what technologies are shared with China, and and. And, they, they, and then, of course, Taiwan is, is a key factor in this because semiconductors, uh, you know, the, one of the most critical pieces of uh, technology, uh, su- supports that exist are largely manufactured in Taiwan. So, of course, this then raises that question as well. Um, but overall, we would have to say this, that the, 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 the contentions exist. Um, between the West and China on this and to what extent they can look at collaboration in terms of working towards producing these things together or to what extent they prioritise the associated risks of potentially having these technologies used against them if indeed they enter into a deeper confrontation or worse conflict.
0: I suppose, I mean, I could take this conversation in so many directions now, but I suppose one I would like to start with, who is doing the escalating here because clearly uh, in the west we see a belligerence uh, towards taiwan on on the side of the Chi- on the, of the chinese the the people's republic of china presumably they see it the other way
1: Oh, uh, absolutely and i think this the the one china policy that is the principal instrument of chinese diplomacy uh, communicates to the world that there is no division between china and taiwan in terms of sovereignty, there is a political impasse that will be addressed um, over time. Now, uh, they, they say that the US-Chinese relations haven't being as bad since 1979. Now that's the year when you have diplomatic relations being established, and the year that the United States acknowledges that Beijing is the capital of China, as opposed to what it previously recognised was Taipei. Because of course you had the the Republic of China, i.e. Taiwan, and then you had the People's Republic of China. Uh, the rest, the, the 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 land, the effective landmass that is the rest of China. So this. This in itself has um, has remained as a as a key area of contention. You have American um, uh, American troops in Taiwan, and you have a principle of a uh, collaborative defence in the event that China moves uh, unilaterally to include Taiwan into what we might describe as Greater China. the The American position is very much that the move should not be made unilaterally. But it does accept the one China policy, i.e. that over time, these two um, entities uh, will gradually become assimilated. It's just that it needs to be done on the basis of of agreement. We have seen recently that um, promises of American military hardware to Taiwan have not actually materialized. And so that arguably this is a de-escalation. Uh, on behalf of the, the United States. And similarly, we've seen a, an attempt to reestablish diplomatic relations at the very highest level uh, through this um, recent visit by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken um, to Beijing, which in some ways underscores this uh, the, this acceptance of the status quo between these two blocks. And I think that is, you know, is something that's really quite substantive in terms of how they, this issue is going to move forward. To what extent these, relatively small issues regarding the military-to-military military contact that we see in the South China Sea? Do we see those potentially like a small incident escalating? And this involves um, you know, warships getting into too close proximity to one another, putting uh, essentially seeing as the other being uh, of risk. Uh, to what extent this offers the potential of escalation, or to what extent we see this as a gradual assertion of China, Chinese power over the sea in which Taiwan is located, and then a, a, an American acceptance of that assimilation over time. Um, I think this pivot that the United States has most recently made would indicate that, that is it, it accepts that approach. But, of course, we don't need to go too far back in American political history to remember a much more belligerent positioning, that of uh, Donald Trump uh, towards China, and, of course, then the associated risks of, um, of small issues uh, escalating into into all out conflict uh, on the basis of um, belligerent rhetoric.
0: I suppose just before we move on from Taiwan, uh, and it's interesting, of course, we did not go into the history of Taiwan and the mm. the Chinese Civil War, but well. I mean, I mean, there are many indigenous people of Taiwan, but fo- uh, following the defeat of Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist forces, he retreated to Taiwan, taking two million of his troops and his people, changing the nature of Taiwan. And until 1998, they also claimed to be the government of the whole of China. So, uh, but, you know, one of the things that strikes me, and correct me if I'm wrong, if China was going to invade Taiwan, surely they would have done it by now.
1: We see the massive risks associated with an all-out conflict over Taiwan, the destruction of a highly, uh, you know, technologically able um, society. And so, if a war was to be fought over Taiwan, you know, the the, the human destruction would be massive, but as as would be the economic um, destruction. So the question is, if China wants to do it, it can, but would it do so while retaining? Uh, the value, and that's specifically in Taiwan. And then, what would be the repercussions elsewhere? So, is China content with its current strategy, which effectively has the acceptance of the vast majority of the of countries around the world, um, the acceptance of the one China policy, and a you know an ongoing conversation within Taiwan about what it's what is the most appropriate relationship to have with China, and then step by step making it more interesting for that. Um, uh, for that to take place so i think it's not a question of can china do this i think that's very clear they can but is china willing to accept the repercussions if it goes about this in a way that is um that is unilateral and if if it is okay for china to pursue this policy um in effect peacefully that you know does, does the population accept it does the, the chinese communist party accept it and in a in a Reasonable understand future projection: Can we see that it would gradually achieve this over time? And so far, that position seems to be holding.
0: Uh, and of course, as we know, there is no, there are no military guarantees, and there's certainly no military guarantees in a seaborne operation. And you, you've never, you never know what the the people you're attacking, how they're going to react, or how hard they're going to fight. The the, the price, even if you you can't guarantee anything in a military campaign.
1: Yeah, and it, it certainly defense favors. You know, a sea, a sea attack favors the defending side. Uh, you would think that milit in purely military terms, they could the the force um, that could be brought would be overwhelming. Uh, but likewise, uh, potentially, could be the destruction, depending on the appetite of both the, the Taiwanese military and, and any allies that they might be able to, um, uh, <coughs> you know, encourage to join with them in the fight.
0: And just I mean, we tend to, I suppose especially in the West, dismiss other regional interests because we can display this. Whether No matter what your politics, some people will always display this, you know, the United States of America and China. But of course, there are other countries in the area. Um, China has a policy of claiming almost the entire South China Sea, uh, including building artificial islands to enforce that, and other countries in in the in the area, notably Japan, uh, the Philippines and even fellow communist Vietnam aren't overly pleased with this either.
1: So, in the same way, I think China China China's military capacity would allow it to assert itself over the entirety of the South China Sea, uh, were it to decide to do so. And I think each each of these islands, uh, which is contested by another country, um, could potentially be. Uh, you know, be, to be a hotspot for conflict. The question is, does China want to simply have it as an ongoing confrontation, i.e., that nobody has effective control over these islands, or, um, or does it actually want to assert itself fully? And China's, um, you know, trading relationships with the the members of the Association for Southeast Asian Nations are enormous. Um, you know, we're talking about billions and billions uh, of value that's being exchanged. So the question is, would China want to disrupt that? There is unity among those 10 nations that are part of ASEAN. And, you know, an attack on one wouldn't necessarily precipitate a conflict across the board. But there would be significant uh, implications um, for this. So, again, I think we can look at China sort of asserting itself um, politically does not necessarily translate into a full, you know, communication that militarily they would attack and attack. what's the word, impose themselves fully over this entire geographical space. Rather, what they're doing is con, um, contesting it so that nobody has effective control. And as such, there is a, a buffer zone, one might say, between themselves and other countries.
0: And of course, China hasn't been at war since 1979. Uh, and that was against Vietnam, uh, which is, sort suppose, an historical fact that not a awful of a lot of people are aware of. Um, Vietnam at that stage, of course, was allied to the Soviet Union. And uh, like everything else, this was all part of a wider game. Now, if we can turn to the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping. um, I mean, China has removed the two-term limit on the presidency. And That's been interpreted, especially in the West, as effectively allowing Xi Jinping to remain in power for life. Um, An an immensely powerful man. He leads what is in reality a one-party state uh, without, I suppose... You cannot compare, I suppose, the the electoral process or politics in in, in China to our own situation. Um, But he effectively... He is effectively, well, what do you think he is?
1: Uh, Well, so Joe Biden is in trouble for referring to him uh, in a campaign fundraising event as a dictator. And I think this was a a casual reference. I think there's no doubt that he is the most powerful Chinese leader since uh, Chairman Mao. Um, there's no doubt that this consolidation of power around the presidency and around extending presidential term limits, which effectively allow him to be president for life, there is no doubt that that um, you know is a significant power play. Um, that moves the country in the direction of what might be seen as a, you know, a full uh, dictatorship. But I think not to compare it with a, a democratic country, but I think what you do have within the Chinese Communist Party is that you do have you know, local, provincial, and national uh, governmental structures through which information is processed, things are discussed, and that there is a degree to which uh, China resolves many of the issues that it faces through um, political process. Now, this is not a, a political process that Western, the Western world would be uh, would desire, uh, nor be particularly respectful of. But what it does mean is that the president of China has a significant human infrastructure, which translates power down from the presidency across the entirety of the country of China, but also facilitates the upward movement of information from all of these areas. And there is evidence to show that that is a responsive relationship. So I think it is equally incorrect to compare China to, to North Korea, for example, whereas a much more rigid hold on par at the very upper levels. And I think what we see in, in China is an incredibly sophisticated Um, Machinery that allows for the development of the country that's been massively effective, uh, you know, rapid rates of economic growth, um, huge education of the population, massive development in human living standards. And in some ways, what we see from the Western point of view is that there is an alternative way uh, to grow. A society to grow an economy and to develop on human terms, and and this really does challenge the Western assumption that the way, the most effective way for society to develop uh, would be through a you know multi-party democracy. And I think China fundamentally challenges that. Um, to what extent it is of direct concern that Xi Jinping has absolute power? I don't think he does, um, and I don't think China would continue to be successful if they did. Place uh, that degree of control over the entire system, but there is no doubt that it's a much more controlling way of doing business. And I think the concern for the for, for the, the the democratic world is that this model might actually be more effective in terms of organising power uh, than that of our own. And it's that uh, competition uh, which is of cause of concern, rather than necessarily the um, the specifics in terms of how it is uh, how they go about it.
0: But when you look at that uh develop you know development potential, I mean I see people especially on the left of Irish politics saying well look look at look at what China's achieved you know with their system with their non democratic system with their communist system, but other people say, no, you know this is neoliberalism with Chinese characteristics." Other people say this is a state capitalist system. Other people say no, this is a socialist country on its way to achieving communism. So, (laughs) China is a country with billionaires. China is a country with unemployed people. China is a country, it's a communist country with huge class differences. Now, you've lived in China for three years. What's it really like?
1: Okay, what is the, how to appropriately describe the Chinese system is a, I, I guess, a, a conundrum. Like I said, there's a there's a, a significant flexibility that exists in terms of allowing all of these issues that are the Chinese people face uh, to be discussed. But there is an, it, it, it takes place in a more narrow and confined way so that there is this, the possibility of challenging outright the system, that's not there. But challenging within the system is a regular feature of Chinese um, society. Like we we see reg, we see trade unions, we see protests, uh, we see lots of um, friction, shall we say, between between different levels of government, between different industries, and um, between um, civil society. We we're aware of the more you know controversial human rights um, issues. You know Xinjiang comes up regularly in the news, um, and that's. You know that i think that is of, of of deep concern but the there are many ways in which chinese people can resolve their issues through the systems that, that exist uh there already so i don't think it, it, it i don't think it compares with uh, the chinese communist system of old i don't think it compares with stalin's russia um it's it's it Well, like corporate oligarchy is one way of describing it in the sense that it's a you know it's a heavily managed um heavily managed system but what it does allow is that for people to you know to have economic freedom up to a point they can choose what they buy they can choose how they invest their money and they can set up businesses and they can they can trade and i think that the emphasis is very much on that and the degree there is a, a degree of freedom that people can do that and that they're happy and satisfied uh, with the opportunities so that provides and also they're happy that there is a a a cohesiveness that it produces that you don't have the outliers and the critics that are able to as they might see it undermine society overall so there is a you know there's many many people in china will strongly defend how the chinese system works they will say no it's not like yours we have a tendency of going to the people that are outside of that circle and asking them what they think and i think there's a, a we're open to the accusation of looking for confirmation bias, but there is a you know 1.3, 1.4 billion people organise themselves in China on a daily basis in a way that is progressive and developmental in many many ways, and I think this is something that uh, you know that we would do well to acknowledge as we um, as our relationship with China will continue into the future.
0: I suppose there's a number of issues there. I mean. She said, "This cannot be. This current manifestation of China can't be compared to the Soviet Union." As you say, you can go and set up a business, you can become a billionaire. Uh, how, but how do you how do you sell that on a day to day basis, saying, we're, "No, we're still communists"?
1: Well, that the the living standards of the average Chinese person have increased massively. So this is the the collective argument is made on the basis that. Uh, the, this rising tide has not necessarily floated all boats, but improved the probability that if, that people's lives would improve. So you have, you know, access to electricity in a massively differentiated way to the way it was, you know, 50 years ago. Uh, you know, access to transport, access to technology, uh, heated homes, all of these different these, these different um, like fundamentals that we as human beings, we would aspire to have having, uh, this has been facilitated by the Chinese governmental system. And I think there's a, there's, you know, there's a strong degree of pride in that. And there's also a satisfaction, uh, that this has taken place. Of course, it's been accompanied by a, um, a more sh- a stricter, uh, control on society, like a str- stricter monitoring of what people can and can't do, uh, you know, a stricter monitoring on thought, on writing, on academic freedom—all of these issues are very much there. But the result overall has been um, pro- progressive, and and as such, I think the I, th- I think this is something that we need to acknowledge that uh, you, know, you know has been an achievement uh, of the Chinese system, um, even even while we accept um, that many of the things that we might take for granted in the West have not been made available to you know, the, the, the average Chinese citizen.
0: But that's interesting. With electricity and with free time, I suppose, and with and with consumer goods, is there not a danger that people say, well, you know what, you know what I'd like? I'd like freedom of thought. Is there not a danger to the system that people turn around and say, you know, yes, I've got a mobile phone, I've got consumer goods, There, there's plenty of things in the shop, but you know what? I want to be able to think, read, and write what I want to be able to think, read, and write.
1: Well, there's a degree to which this attention has existed throughout the history of the, you know, the modern Chinese state, and I think we we, you know, we see key elements, you know, including the, the what the lead up to the Tiananmen Square massacre um, that, um, that that exemplify that. We also see the concerns that have been raised in Hong Kong um, by the the Rainbow Movement in particular as the as the as the political system in Hong Kong increasingly exemplifies that in the rest of China, as opposed to um, being somehow comparable to a a more um, a more Western model. So the 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 desire for this to take place is is there. Um, I think the question is is it that they want to think specific things, and do they find that in some ways they're you know the the you know, the artists for example in china when there is a strong artistic tradition there's a strong filmmaking tradition, there's a strong literary tradition do people feel that they're that they're what they wish to do personally is fundamentally curtailed because of this principle that uh that you know that you don't have absolute freedom you know can they work within the margins of what's being provided to them or do they feel that they can't do that? And I think, you know, we look to Ai Weiwei as possibly the most significant, um, producer of, uh, you know, Chinese art outside of the, outside of the establishment. And we see that clearly there's one example of somebody who has not been able to do that and has been punished, um, for it. But of course, within the rest of the population of China, there is a, you know, a massive amount of, um, of thought taking place and the absence of the complete freedom to do that has not necessarily been a fundamental challenge to the, to the general development of society. So it's a, it's a, I think this again, something that can be defended from the, from the Chinese side. And then of course, in the West, we have our own issues with, uh, restrictions on what it is possible to say, uh, and, and do, um, and, uh, you know, restrictions on journalism, for example. Uh, you know, Julian Assange is regularly brought up as an example of this. Um, so we see that uh, similarly, well, there are challenges in terms of and um, in, in terms of fully realizing what it means to have freedom of thought and expression. Um,
0: China is a massive country. It's, it's been described as a civilization state. Now, clearly, there's one ethnic group. Um, dominate all others, uh, like in like in every country. Um, I'm of a certain age, I remember the Tiananmen Square um, massacre. I also remember, you know, it was regular um, to hear, you know, to see graffiti and to hear people saying free Tibet. It's been a very long while since I have heard people saying that many people, I suppose, on the left would, would, would have a very positive view of China nowadays. And, you know, whether it's... Um, Tibet or Xinjiang or Inner Mongolia, there perhaps wouldn't be the sympathy for those population groups uh, that there was. Uh, nevertheless, those are people perhaps beyond beyond the the majority there, and perhaps you know, as you say, maybe we do go looking for them or or have done in the past in the West, and yet this 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 this, this, this civilization has expanded itself since World War Two, over Tibet, over over Xinjiang and over a, a, a large area. Do you think we forget about that or to focus too much about it on the West?
1: In the West. Um, I was, okay, so there's, I think there's a number of uh, different dynamics uh, take, taking place here. I would have concern that we sing, singularly focus on these dynamics um, for the purposes of... Um, shall we say, shaming or exposing or embarrassing China um, in terms of our competitive um, political relationship. And I think that's a, that's a risk uh, that we we can succumb to. I think on the human rights side, those that would um, support, uh, you know, the upholding of human rights, I think there are key issues Um here that remain uh, heavily contentious. I think the reason we hear less about Tibet is that there is now a sufficient um, Han Chinese population in Tibet uh, that's permanently located there to mean that there isn't really a, you know, a democratic argument for a majority of the, you know, the population that would want anything different from what they have right now. Well, that's and called changing that, uh, the
0: reality on the ground. I think yeah. that's the, that's yeah, yeah. that's that, that's what you do. That's, I mean, there are, there are many states, uh, who who, who mm-hmm. you know. So you change populations. That's been going on since the beginning of time. You settle your own people in an area, and you've changed that political reality, as you say. But that probably, from a Tibetan point of view, from a Tibetan Tibetan point of view, uh, yeah. is part of the problem, not the
1: solution. But well, the, the, so the, the the comparison I'm making is that Xinjiang, the same effect hasn't been fully achieved as yet, although that arguably that process is in in play. And that's like the the difference between Tibet and Xinjiang, you know, they're specific ethnic minorities. They both lie on the the Eastern side of, you know, significant mountain ranges that China uh, views as being critical to its geopolitical and military security. And as such, they're pulled into the the Chinese empire. And from the Chinese perspective, these are unquestionably uh, Chinese territories. So in in Tibet, or could be the process has moved to the extent where we hear relatively little about little about it. In in Xinjiang, we you know that these reports are pretty clear regarding the uh, the use of uh, concentration camps uh, to reconfigure um, thought amongst the indigenous population of Xinjiang, and I think this is um, a Blunt uh, political process that the Chinese government uh, uses Uh, again highly problematic from a human rights um, perspective, and I think it is worthy uh, of you know for the Chinese government to be challenged on this. Coming back to the first point, I I would have concerns that those that have the the biggest voice to Chinese sorry to challenge China uh, with regards to these don't necessarily do so uh, with um, you know genuinely. I think there is a concern that they use these processes to embarrass um, um, China and to to shore up um, populist support back home, uh, as opposed to genuinely uh, having concerns for the, you know, the populations who are are suffering in this, you know, significant geopolitical power play that's ongoing.
0: I take that. I take that point. I take that point. But... Uh you know, I, but I because I've had discussions around these issues lately, but I mean, I would take people back to Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, for example. And, you know, some people say, well, Amnesty are, are, are making that up. But then her Amnesty making things up about other places, you know, because I, I think we've discussed this before, uh, Angus, in the podcast when we're talking about international affairs. It depends where you sit uh, or which side of the stadium you sit in this, you know, wild international game. Because there are people, especially some commentators on the left who would say, you know, do not be um, highlighting these human rights abuses um, because it it it's part of a wider game, you know. And it, as you say, it is part of a wider game. But nevertheless, that doesn't this does, that doesn't mean that uh, groups like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, for example, shouldn't be highlighting these 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 huge issues. And that's not to say, obviously, we don't have human rights issues in the West.
1: Absolutely, and I think we should be viewing at the same time when we look at the issues that uh, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch are raising elsewhere we should also be looking at what they're saying at home and we should be holding our own governments to account on the basis of the you know the of of what they're of what information they're sharing and i think we you know we have key issues such as you know the migration policy and the legacy um legislation that's being discussed that are not considered to be acceptable by Amnesty International I think it's it's on this basis that we uh, that we you know critique the you know, the international politics and say well if you're so serious about human rights in one place why aren't you taking these um, these issues as seriously um, elsewhere? and I think that's the important, important thing to be made. I think you know the Chinese position would be very much that these are in- internal issues and not to be uh, a, you know, not um, of interest. Uh, in, in in the international sphere um and that they they will resolve them internally but of course that if they if they so wish they can also make criticism of the of the policies of other countries and then we we enter into this tit-for-tat relationship where um where nothing is really achieved because essentially it's just a matter of throwing criticism uh at one another the question comes like what can we achieve if we do um if we do engage if we do and establish some type of framework of cooperation and uh, and work together um, on the issues that the world faces and then see what can be resolved um, elsewhere Cause I think this is what the, you know the overall issue that, that is constantly thrown up is that can we cooperate with China on the basis of uh, you know thinking about how affairs are managed on this globe or do we need to have a relationship of confrontation and indeed risking conflict?
0: Angus, after our conversations, I'm never sure whether I'm positive about the future of the world or or, or negative about the future of the world, but I'm certainly better informed. Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't?
1: So what we saw last week was the first visit by a a United States Secretary of State to China in five years. This followed on from a, a visit by the director of the CIA, And we see it as a prelude to potentially having a meeting between President Biden and Xi Jinping um, at the forthcoming APEC uh, conference. That's the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation um, entity. What this pivot potentially means is the the viewing of China and its relationship with the West as being a positive thing and then having the All of the issues that we've just raised as being subordinate to that i.e these two superpowers coming together to cooperate on global issues such as you know peace and security uh climate change etc and then having the what we've we've discussed in economic terms in terms of taiwan in terms of uh human rights those forming part of a, a subordinate relationship um, and I think there is the potential that this would take place. There is the potential that that's viewed as being the strategy for the Democratic Party going into the next um, uh, electoral cycle in the United States. And there is a sense that the European Union might also um, follow suit. That China is viewed as being a stable, um, mature uh, superpower. That and, and that business can be done. Uh, with it. And and if this is the case, I think that is, you know, that, that's certainly positive for, for overall uh, global conflict. Within that, what we saw was that the, um, you know, the China has agreed not to supply further weapons to Russia in its conflict with Ukraine. But similarly, the United States has accepted that China's economic relationship, which is deep, uh, with Russia can continue, and indeed that the, the political relationship, uh, they remain allied uh, on a variety of issues. So I think there's the overall conclusion is to, um, that is this an indicator that the United States is looking at China as a partner superpower in terms of the management of global affairs, um, as opposed to on one, one hand, trying to maintain its hegemony as being the only superpower or on the other hand as um, avoiding a potential full out confrontation with China because if you add up the long, long list of issues that China and United States have, there is the potential that you can then justify having a wholesale conflict uh, between these two superpowers. So this reframing of the relationship does potentially um, avoid that. But of course, there will be many consequences that come uh, through that, because the the subordinate issues will not necessarily be contested as fiercely, and there will of course be um, a variety of implications uh, for that. Not least, as we have mentioned, the the indigenous populations uh, of China and indeed Taiwan.
0: Angus Lamkin, thank you very much. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. The clips you heard were from CNN, ABC, and DW News. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.